Well, church, it's good to be with you. My name is Matthew Boffey, and I lead the worship ministry here at Christ Church. I'm excited to open God's Word with you this morning. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John 17, John chapter 17, or if you have your bulletin with you, you can follow along there. We come now to the end of uh, Jesus' upper room discourse, and uh, He's closing the night off with prayer. So that's where we are tonight, or this morning, John 17, hear the Word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them. In your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. Because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth." The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, turn now to enter into this um, profound prayer from from the lips of your Son, I pray that you would help us to appreciate its gravity and experience its transforming power, Lord, and that you would shape our identities now through this word. In your son's name I pray, amen. Well, there are certain moments in life that are transforming moments where you enter a room as one person and you leave as another, so to speak. And often there's a ceremony attached to those moments. Probably the most uh, the obvious one would be a wedding ceremony where you come in as two distinct people and you leave as one. You leave with the identity of a husband or a wife, and the way you live is now entirely changed. 
or, uh, you know, an ordination service for a pastor or a church officer where you, uh, have, you are being called into the ministry and you kneel down and you receive uh, the call th- through the laying on of hands and you rise now as, as a pastor or an elder and, and it shapes your whole life. Or the delivery room is a room where transformation happens. After the struggle of labor, you receive a child into your arms, and in that moment, you are changed. You become a mom or a dad. You gain a new identity, and you start losing a ton of sleep. These are the moments in life that transform us, and they are pivotal pivotal moments. Well, our passage today is the culmination of such a moment in the life of Jesus' disciples. Uh, this prayer is at the end of what you might consider a ordination service for Jesus' disciples. For the last four chapters of, of John, Jesus has essentially been transferring his ministry to the disciples as he is about to depart from earth through his death and resurrection and ascension. And so here he is setting his disciples apart for this ministry. You know, it the ceremony begins with, with a cleansing. Jesus washes the disciples' feet and says, unless I wash you, you have no share in me. And then he spends a few chapters teaching them fundamental truths about who God is, about the relationship between, the God, between God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what they can expect following him. And then here we come to the end of that ceremony, so to speak, and Jesus is, is giving a prayer of dedication to his disciples. And so this is a pivotal, pivotal moment in their lives. And if you believe in Jesus, it is for you as well. This is your prayer of consecration. Jesus says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word. So this is the one place in Scripture where Jesus prays for all Christians for all time. And what Jesus prays for us here teaches us who we are, that we are priests and priestesses in the line of Jesus, the great high priest. And so we're going to take this prayer in in two parts. First, Jesus prays for himself, verses 1 through 5, and then second, Jesus prays for his disciples, verses 6 through 17. So Jesus prays for himself as our representative, and then Jesus prays for his disciples and us as his representatives on earth. So let's start with the the first main point, Jesus prays for himself. I want to draw our attention to to two particular elements about uh, his prayer in verses 1 through 5. The first is that Jesus prays for his glory. Jesus prays for his glory. Look at verse 1. He says, glorify your son, that the Son may glorify you. Now, what does Jesus mean when he says this? What is glory here? It is his exaltation or his splendor. Look at verse 5. He says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is asking to be returned to his glorified state, and that the hour, that is his crucifixion, will be the hour in which that ascent, that ascent begins. Jesus is about to reach the very bottom of his life, where he will empty the very last ounce of himself. 
You can imagine the life of the incarnate son as a sort of downward parabolic curve where Jesus, uh, where the son existed in eternity past with the father in glory. But as Philippians says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and that he was so humbled that he went even to death, even death on a cross. So that's the very bottom of the curve. But this curve is still on a trajectory of glory. As the passage in Philippians continues, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So Paul is teaching here, or Paul is teaching there what Jesus is praying here, that his humiliation would ultimately serve his exaltation, and his exaltation, and not his only, uh, but the Father's as well. And that leads us to the second part of this uh, first part of the prayer that I want to draw our attention to, and that is the Son's partnership with the Father, how they are working in tandem. Look down at the text with me, verse 1, as an example. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify you. In other words, let my glory be your glory. Jesus and the Father are sharing glory. Or verse 2, watch the use of the word give here. You have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So God has given Jesus authority to give eternal, eternal life. To whom? Those the Father has given him. In verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished all the work that you gave me to do. So the Father gives the Son work, and the Son glorifies the Father in doing the work. There is this perfect partnership. It's almost like Jesus is giving us a, a window into the eternal boardroom of God, where the, God, the Godhead is discussing its business, you know, the mission, their mission and vision and aim, if you will, the vision to grant eternal life. The mission is Jesus' work, his teaching, his miracles, his death, resurrection, and ascension, his whole life. And the aim is God's glory, because God's love is revealed his goodness is revealed in how he has moved heaven and earth to rescue us. He has even sent his own son. So the love of God manifested on the cross is the glory of God. And so what Jesus reveals here is that his submission to the Father's will is ultimately in service to his and God's glory. Now, why would Jesus begin the prayer this way? What is it to the disciples and to us? Well, we need to know what the gospel serves and what our ministry serves. What is the ultimate end of this rescue mission from God? Well, the answer is God's glory and ours. Amen. Everyone is born pursuing glory. We were made for it. We were made to glorify God and to walk in His image, which is our glory. But in our sin, we have divorced those pursuits. We have, we have taken our pursuit of glory over and against our pursuit of God's glory. And what this passage is showing us is that they are united in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That to do the Father's will is to glorify God and at once 
to ascend to glory. And so if we are to be sent out into the world as priests and priestesses in the line of Jesus, we must know that we are serving a cause greater than ourselves. You know, as uh, the folk prophet Bob Dylan wrote, you got to serve somebody. You may be a businessman or some high-degree thief. You, they may call you doctor or they may call you thief, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. What Jesus is doing in this first part of the prayer is showing that he served God and that if you were to walk in his ways, you serve God as well and that the, res- the rescue mission of God results in the glory of God. We are not just spinning our wheels, church, in our life here on earth. We are caught up in the grand narrative of the world, the great why of all things, the glory of God. That is our purpose. Amen? Amen. Well, so in the first part of this prayer, Jesus prays for himself, and and then he moves on to pray for his disciples. If we are to be priests and priestesses in the line of Jesus for the glory of God, what do we need for that service? Well, that's what Jesus prays for us. And there are three broad movements to this part of the prayer, and you can use these words as headings. Given, kept, and consecrated. Given, kept, and consecrated. Let's start with the first one, given. Jesus prays for those whom the Father has given to him. Now, this giving language that we saw in the first part of the text between the uh, Son and the Father, it continues here. In fact, there are six different forms of the word give, and if you trace them, what it essentially all boils down to is that God has given Jesus people out of the world to receive eternal life. And they receive that life by receiving the word of God that Jesus gives to them. So God gives the words to Jesus. Jesus gives the words to those God has given him. And the result is eternal life. Verse 6 says, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And what is that word? The verse 8, They have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The given ones are those who have received and kept God's word of salvation. And and this part of the prayer, it it takes us to the difficult but very important and ultimately comforting doctrine of election. The doctrine of election is difficult because it teaches very plainly that God gives some to Jesus for salvation and others he does not give. Some he calls out of the world and some he does not. And for centuries, Christians have wrestled with this high doctrine that goes beyond our understanding in terms of how to parse this truth with God's justice and goodness and even human free will because we do believe or don't believe. But this doctrine is, is all over Scripture, both the Old and New Testaments. You know, the Old Testament, Jesus or God chose Israel among all the other nations. And even within the history of Israel, he chooses certain sons to carry on the line uh, of Jesus. You know, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. 
And then when we get into the New Testament, we, again, we see this doctrine everywhere, especially in the Gospel of John, where we are now. John 6 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Or John 10, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Or Acts 13, which I find uh, one of the more convincing text on this doctrine. Uh, Paul has preached a sermon in a city, and then the text says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So there were a certain number of people in that city appointed to eternal life, and that exact number believed. You see it in Ephesians and in Romans and in First and Second Peter. There's even a passage in Romans that anticipates our objection to this doctrine. We hear this truth that God chooses some and not others, and I think all of our hearts ask, what? <laughs> that seems so unfair. How could a good God do that? Well, Romans responds to that objection this way. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The doctrine of election ultimately pushes you to have absolute confidence in God's character. That is the end of the road of this doctrine. You must come to a place where you believe that God is so holy and perfect and just that there is no fault in him, that he chooses some and not others. And this doctrine, though difficult, is also a comfort. And here is how it is a comfort. It is inseparable from the truth that your salvation does not depend on your will, but on God. Yes, we do believe in God to have salvation, but Scripture itself says that faith is a gift from God. Just as here, Jesus is teaching that those who believe in him are the same ones that God gave him. These things go together. And so the comfort of this doctrine is that you are not saved because you ascended to some special knowledge of God or that, you know, you whipped your will into shape to where you finally come to believe. No, it is because God gave you to Jesus for your salvation before the foundations of the world. I have a, an uncle who is dying of cancer. He had beaten it and it has recently come back and is very aggressive. He maybe has months to live. And he does not believe. And I was talking to a family member yesterday about this and she said, I just wish there was some combination of words that if I could get right, he would believe. And I do too. If there was, everyone in our family would memorize it and we'd beat him over the head with those words until he finally came to believe. We love our uncle. But here's where election can be a comfort amid true sorrow. And I don't think it erases the sorrow. I think it attends the sorrow. That it is not up to us to phrase things just right. If God has elected some for salvation, they, someone for salvation, that person will believe. He will remove their blindness so that they can see the good name of Jesus. And while it's a difficult pill to swallow that God chooses some and not others, even 
that he might not choose someone we deeply love, we can rest in knowing that it's not up to us. It is in the hands of a perfect, loving, and just Father. So why does Jesus pray this? Why does Jesus include this truth about our being given to God in his consecration prayer? I think it's because if we are to go into the world as priests and priestesses in the line of Jesus, we must know that we were set apart by grace. There's nothing special about you or I that we were chosen for this ministry. It is a gift of God. The the doctrine of election is about as close to the reality of grace as you can get. You are not here by your own doing. And so, as priests and priestesses, we preach the same grace that we were given. And I think it's important that we have a true experience with that grace. And if there's anyone in this room who does not believe, I want to give you a word of comfort and caution. Not to fall into some sort of mind game here. To try and, you know, peer into the mind of God and discern whether you are elect or not. As much as Scripture talks about the doctrine of election... It also sends the salvation, the, the invitation of salvation to every address. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Or the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God desires your salvation. So do you want to know if you are given to Jesus? Answer this question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again from your sins? That is the confession of the elect. And so I invite you now in this moment to believe in that name. Well, so Jesus reveals in his prayer that we are given to him by God, and this assures us. And next, he prays that God would keep us. Jesus is, is leaving, and he is, in a sense, handing us back to the Father. And so we come to our second heading, which is kept. Jesus prays for our keeping. You know, he begins uh, his whole prayer for us in verse 6 by saying, I have manifested your name to those whom you have given me. And now in verse 11b, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. So in other words, I have showed them who you are, and they have believed. Now, God, keep them in belief. Keep them yours. Preserve them. And so we come to another comforting doctrine for Christians, which is the preservation of the saints, that God himself holds our faith together by keeping us in his name. Why do we need the keeping ministry of God, his guarding, his preserving, his protecting for our ministry? Well, based on what Jesus, what surrounds Jesus' prayer here, it seems that there are, are three needs that are met and are being kept by God, and those are unity, joy, and protection. And yes, I am now preaching a subpoint of a subpoint, so stick with me. The first need that is met and are being kept by God is our unity. At the very end of verse 11, Jesus says, keep them in your name that they may be one, even as we are one. You know, for the last several chapters, Jesus has been unfolding how it is that he and the Father are one. Their words are one. Their ministry is one. Their glory is one. 
Well, there is a risk that the disciples will fracture and so obscure the oneness and unity of God. But so long as they are in the name, they are one. There's a Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote where he is describing Christ as the mediator between people. He says, Christ stands between us, and we can only get into touch with our neighbors through him. Christ is what believers have in common. It is what unites us. Our disunity comes when we set up a different mediator between us. You know, who did you vote for, or who do you read, or what do you think about X topic? And while some of these things do matter for the Christian life, we must be very careful not to displace ourselves from the name that is above all names to any other name, and therein make enemies of each other. Have we not experienced that this year? The path to unity is the path to Jesus. Church, it is so beneath us to quibble over small matters. That is not the work of the one unified royal priesthood of God. We are fellow priests and priestesses with a mission. And so we need unity, and we have that by being kept in God's name. Another need that we have, which is met in his keeping ministry, is our joy. Our joy. Look at verse 13. Jesus prays, These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. How can we possibly have joy when we are being sent out into a world that hates us, as the scripture says? The answer is that we are united to Jesus. And so we have his joy. It is not a circumstantial joy. It is a personal joy. Psalm 16 says, In your presence there is fullness of joy. Where is our risen Lord? In the presence of the Father. In his joy. There's a famous quote by uh, an author, G.K. Chesterton, at the end of his book, Orthodoxy, which I would Uh, strongly commend, where he is talking about the emotions of Jesus. And he he writes this, there was something that he hid from all men when he went up a mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth or joy. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I, I wonder if that was his holiness rubbing up against the brokenness of the world, the response of which is grief. But it seems Jesus carried in him a, an inner heat of joy because of his communion with the Father. And what Jesus is praying for us too is that we would, or here, is that we would have that same inner heat, that quiet internal vault of confidence that we know to whom we belong and where we are going and the ministry that we have and so that we can have true joy in the midst of a difficult life as priests in a world that hates us. And so that is another need that is met and are being kept by God. And then lastly, 
we have the need of protection. Verse 15 says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Though it's true that Jesus has overcome the world, Scripture teaches that there's a sort of residual cosmic struggle between the evil one and God. Verse John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The evil one does have true power to afflict true harm. And this is why Jesus prays for our protection. And saints, this is a prayer the Father loves to answer. We really are safe from the evil one and really are protected. Though we are the target of the evil one's attacks, we have God himself as our shield. And so all these things together are the keeping ministry of God, that God is truly preserving our faith until we have finished our task. Could you imagine us going out into the world without these benefits? If we had to go out into the world without unity with one another or without the joy, the invincible joy of God or without His protection, it would be so disheartening and dangerous. We would just stay inside and we'd just huddle together. But that's not our ministry. And so God has equipped us for our ministry by His keeping power. We can go out and endure all manner of disagreement and hatred and sorrow because of these gifts for us in God's name. Well, if we were given to Christ and are now kept by God, it is for a purpose, and that purpose is to serve Him. And so we arrive now at our last point, which is consecrated. Jesus prays for our consecration. He says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Now, sanctified, sanctify is not a word we use very often in our common parlance. You know, kids, go sanctify your hands before dinner. We don't really say that. What does this word mean? It's, it's a bit more full than being made clean, although it does include that. It belongs to the same word group as a word we see in just a few sentences, consecrated. That is, set apart. I wish I had time to bring us into the Old Testament sacrificial system to show how these words uh, developed and how they relate to each other. But the point is that when Jesus prays, sanctify them in your truth, it means something like, set them apart as holy for service to you. Make them holy by your truth for service to you. Dedicate them. Consecrate them. This is exactly what Jesus does in his own ministry. In verse 19, he says, For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus so dedicated himself to God's will that he was both the priest and the sacrifice made on our behalf. He is the sanctified one, the set-apart one, so that we, by being found in him, can be sanctified as well. And so it is not your work to sanctify yourself. It is the work of God on your behalf. So if I can package this last point briefly, it's this. Jesus prays that we will be people of God's word dedicated to God's mission. People of God's word that is conformed to the truth of God's word and dedicated to God's mission. And this is a profound assignment. You know, I think about 
uh, how you know sometimes if there's a medical emergency on a plane, a flight attendant will ask, "Is there a doctor on this plane?" And that person's services are, are called up. You know, being a doctor is one of those professions that you don't really leave at the door. Sometimes you take it with you. Well, church, we are in a sense the priests on the plane. We are the priests of the world. And we don't leave that here on Sunday morning. We are set apart. We carry this identity with us everywhere. At work, in the home, at stoplights, at the grocery store, everywhere at all times. We are set apart as priests and priestesses in the way of Jesus. This is our calling. And so now let's step back and just package this whole thing up. What is this entire passage teaching us and leaving us with? We are sent into the world as priests and priestesses in the line of Jesus, proclaiming eternal life to the glory of God. We are given to God, kept by God, and consecrated to God for this work. We are caught up in the great work of the ages, the rescue mission of God. I was talking to uh, Matthew Stanley, who has been attending our church the last few weeks, um, a couple weeks ago, and he said, you know, when I meet another Christian, I want to sense that they're a co-conspirator against the darkness. And I just love that, co-conspirator against the darkness. That's our work, church, to conspire against the darkness in the name of Jesus Christ. God hasn't left us in the world to just hum along or blend in or, you know, uh, hunker down and just wait it out or to fight, you know, little culture wars that don't in the end matter that much. God has kept us in the world not to, not to make the world comfortable for us, but to call people out of the world. He is using us to do that. We are co-conspirators against the darkness in Christ. And so I put before us this challenge. Sometime today, let's make use of the Sabbath and go and look in the mirror. I really mean it. literally go look in a mirror for a little while until it's a little bit uncomfortable and ponder this truth. I'm a priest or a priestess of God in the line of Jesus. How do I then live? Is my life shaped by this all-transforming identity. And pray for God to give you insight and power to take up this work that he has bestowed on you. Let me, pray, let me speak this word from 1 Peter over us. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That is our identity, church. Let's take it up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your incredible ministry to us. Thank you that you have given us to Christ for salvation, that you have kept us and are keeping us in your name, and that you have set us apart for service to you. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us for that service by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.